Two weeks from today, we've got a really uh, exciting day as a church. Uh, we are calling this day One Day. It's based on an incredible passage from Psalm 84, verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. Say that with me. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. Our application to this passage today is better is one day in your courts than a thousand days in Baton Rouge or Tuscaloosa, all right? Yeah, we're getting over that, aren't we? Wow, what an exciting day we're going to have. On this day, we have a guest speaker, Jeff Wally. Many of you remember him being here years ago, uh, probably the most demanded preacher in our brotherhood. It's going to be a day of revival. Uh, we're going to be celebrating our friends, and our family, and our community. Uh, we want to invite you, to, we want to encourage you to take these invitation cards that you'll get at the end of service today and give them out to as many of your friends and family as possible. We're going to have a praying for a great, beautiful day. We'll have a lunch out on the lawn. You need to go ahead and purchase tickets for that today in the lobby. Those are not very expensive. All your friends get to eat free. And also you can see this worksheet there in your bulletin where you can sign up to, to help with that. So please be praying. That's just two weeks from today about a really good day and be thinking of the people that you're going to invite where this could be one day that makes an incredible difference. Even that night, we're going to meet back together and have a great worship time with one of our predominantly African-American churches here in town just to reach out to our community and make a difference, and Jeff will still be with us, and you will be so very, very blessed. Let's pray together. God, thank you for bringing us together on this beautiful day today. Thank you for the fellowship, God, that we can have. Thank you for the unity that we have in Jesus God, as we open up your word, God, may you speak to us today from Daniel chapter 5. What a a crazy and yet incredible chapter we study today. And we pray, Father, you'll use it to help us be more like Jesus and closer to you and more aware, God, of what's going on around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you're staying in a hotel, you're well aware of, of that telephone right beside your bed. And that all you've got to do is call the front desk and ask for a wake-up call. I mean, you can tell them to call you at 4 a.m. I don't know why you do that, but they will call you at 4 a.m. And, and that's become an adage in our language that, that I received a wake-up call. It's when an event comes about in my life that gets my attention. We've had those kind of events in our, our nation's history on September the 11th, 2001, when those planes came crashing into those two towers, it woke us up as a nation that we were not secure and that there was an enemy that sought to destroy us. The sad thing, though, about that wake-up call is that we had received numerous wake-up calls before that that we had disregarded. My goodness, the Twin Towers had been bombed just a few, a few years before that. On 1912... We got a wake-up call about what was called the unsinkable ship, the Titanic. At 11.40 that evening, it hit an iceberg and split in two, and thousands perished. But the sad thing again in that story is that there were many wake-up calls along the way that were just blatantly disregarded. The ships that were close to the Titanic had been sending messages that you're close to an iceberg, you need to be careful. The Titanic sent back this message, shut up, shut up, you're jamming our signal, I'm busy and I'm working. And they disregarded a wake-up call 
for the death of thousands. There's an adage in our passage this morning, the handwriting's on the wall. Think about that. Written thousands of years ago, and yet an adage we still use like a wake-up call. Maybe you lose your job with your company, and you think, I should have seen the handwriting on the wall. We see that story today where God literally takes a hand and writes on a wall. Now, this is a great story if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 5 where we're going to be studying. And and in here we see this king, Belshazzar. Um, Sort of an interesting sidelight is that for years and years, liberal scholars said this is a made-up Bible name. That this king never really existed. That the Bible just made this up and used it as they always try to do to discredit the Bible. A little over 100 years ago in an archaeological dig, there's a, there's a dig in where they found out about a king that we did know about, Nebuchadnezzar and his son, Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar had allowed Belshazzar to rule in Babylon while he went out to fight the Medes and the Persians. And so as always, the Bible was proven to be right. You know, when it comes to, to archaeological digs, we've only co- uncovered about 1% of what's available in the Middle East And here's the cool thing that happens is every time we dig, we find out more about why the Bible is the inspired word of God. And here's one of those stories. Now, Belshazzar, as Donald Trump would say, was a disastrous king, an absolute disaster. And God is trying to wake up the situation. So let me give you an outline of this chapter. First of all, we're going to see a wild party. Then we're going to be seeing a a weird picture. We're going to hear from a wise prophet who finally makes a weighty pronouncement. Let's go to Daniel chapter 5. Let's watch that wild party in verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple. Now, just a couple interesting points here. Most kings didn't drink and eat in the banquet in front of people. They were normally off to the side in ancient days. So when a king would eat in front of you, maybe up on a dais, what it would be would be a symbol for you to follow his lead. And so this king, Belshazzar, sets the example of a, a drunken feast here. It's not some nice banquet with tablecloths and white napkins and the forks in all the right places. This turns into a drunken mess, and he sets the tone. That it talks about his father, uh, his father um, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, we know that his father, that was his grandfather, but understanding the ancient language of Hebrew, they had no word for grandfather. Just like when in the New Testament they talk about Jesus being the son of David. It doesn't mean he's the right son of David. It means he's in the lineage of David. And so we find out that Nebuchadnezzar was his great-grandfather. And so then he begins this party and begins to drink. And, and he gets tired of the Dixie cups and says, my goodness, we got these wonderful goblets that when we took these exiles in from Jerusalem, let's go get the goblets that were in the temple of their God and let's make fun of them. Oh, look what look happens as we keep reading. So they brought in the golden goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank them. As they drank the wine, they praised the God of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, 
and stone. Not only do they take the goblets, but they begin to use them in a praise of these foreign gods. It's a crazy party. Now, here's the interesting thing. What's going on around this party is that the Medes and Persians have surrounded Babylon. We have very specific history about this. We know the date of this event. They have surrounded Babylon and are trying to enter the city. And in the middle of this, what does the government do? The government throws a party. I don't know if it was out of just desperation, let's all get drunk and forget what's going on. Or possibly it's out of arrogance. We've got walls that are 300 feet tall and 80 feet wide. Who's going to be able to get in? It's a crazy, crazy call. So it's a bad call to throw a party. It's a worse call that they all get drunk. I think today, maybe we have discounted the dangers of alcohol. Maybe as a church, we can't draw a firm line as we once could and say, you know, all alcohol is sinful. Maybe we have used that as an excuse to, to forget the dangers. Let me just give you some statistics here. 50% of suicides involve alcohol. 50% of violent crimes, alcohol is involved. 50%, at least over 50% of traffic accidents involve alcohol. And 60% of emergency room visits have to do with alcohol. It's a disastrous call in the middle of this war to say, let's just all get drunk. And then what's even more disastrous is to make fun of the holy items of God. Well, God's not too happy about this. So look at these bizarre words. Chapter 5, verse 5. Suddenly the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now we got a weird picture. This is an incredibly big banquet hall. For measurement, it's at least a half a football field large. So big. In the middle of the thing, on a wall, close to the lampstand, God decides to do his first PowerPoint. And so he takes it, just, there's not an arm, there's just a hand writing on the wall. And King Belshazzar is so shook up by this. You can only imagine the revelry of the party to this moment when this bizarre scene unfolds. And there's this handwriting on the wall. And Belshazzar begins to shake. Such a weird picture. But what happens then? Well, they do what they do all through the book of Daniel. They, they, they call the soothsayers in, the magicians in. Because they can't read the wall. More than likely it was written in Aramaic. And they can't read it. And so they call all their high officials in to try to give interpretation. And you know the story. It's deja vu in the book of Daniel. They can't get it. And then the queen mother. It seems that that when the, the handwriting on the wall happened, people screamed so loud that it got her attention. And she comes running to the hall. And she begins to tell Belshazzar about this incredible guy named Daniel. Now, by this point in our story, Daniel is probably 70 or 80 years old. And she begins to tell him that Daniel can interpret those dreams. 
And so the king, who is so shook up, I'm told that shock produces sobriety. And this may be one of the fastest cases of sobriety in history. He is so scared. He's sober. He sees what's going on. They call Daniel in. They offer Daniel what they offered all the other uh, of their, their magicians and men. If you can interpret this, then we will give you a purple robe of royalty. We'll give you a gold chain symbolizing power. And you'll become third in power here in Babylon. In other words, you got the dad, now you've got the son, and Daniel, you'll be right up there with him. Listen to Daniel's response. Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Daniel's at an age where he's not playing games. He can't be bribed. He can't be bought. I don't care to get your stuff. You give it to somebody else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when him, this is your great-grandfather, became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. You remember that from Caleb's message last Sunday. Until he acknowledged the most high God and sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. He said, you know what? Your great-grandfather, he was a mess. But when he was humbled, he was humbled. And you're not him. Some of us are old enough to remember that debate years ago. It was a vice presidential debate where Dan Quayle compared himself to John F. Kennedy And Lloyd Benson, the old senator, looked across the debate and said, I knew John Kennedy, and you're no John Kennedy. And Daniel says, I knew your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're no Nebuchadnezzar, because you've not humbled yourself before God. And then we see this wise prophet here. I mean, just think of the things that that he acknowledges here. He gives some warnings, actually. The wise prophet, he says a few things to this king. Number one, you disregarded God's warnings. You disregarded God's warnings. Go to that next slide. You disregarded God's warnings. You, you, you didn't pay attention to what God was saying. That's so easy to do, isn't it? What would he say to this guy is, you knew all this. You saw it, and yet you didn't do anything about it. How often do we disregard what God has said? And the problem here with with this king is he had knowledge. God had shaken up things before. God had given previous wake-up calls, and he doesn't listen to it. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's It's a matter of a lack of application. You know, often we have debates in our mind about what's going to happen to the people in the middle of Africa who never heard about Jesus, 
who had no knowledge of Jesus, and, and we are worried about what is their outcome, and that's a complicated issue. But my friends today, I think we ought to be more worried about those of us who have knowledge of God who don't respond to that knowledge who know what God wants out of our life, who knows the priorities God wants to put in our life, who knows what should be important and not important, and yet we disregard it. We know what God has said about greed. We know what he said about gossip. We know what he said about drunkenness. We know what he said about sex. We know what he said about selfishness. We know what he said about priorities in life. And yet too often, we go about our business, we just disregard what he said. That's the problem with this king. He says, number two, not only did you disregarded God's warning, you have defiled God's holy vessels. Now, what an arrogant act. What an in-your-face act to go get the goblets from the temple and to drink for them and to worship gods of stone. It's a sad picture. He says, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've shaken your fist. You've spat in his face. You've taken lightly the holy things of God. That's a great warning to us. What holy things do we today often treat in a way that's defiling? How about the holy temple today, which is our body? How many of us do things with our bodies? I mean, that's Paul's greatest argument against sexual immorality is when you hook yourself up with that person, you've hooked up God. How many of us disregard the holiness of our bodies by the way we live and the way we behave and the way we even treat our bodies? How often do we disregard the Holy Scriptures by our cavalier attitude toward the Bible? We hardly ever read it. When we read it, we don't pay much attention to it. And God can say something, and I can just simply disregard it. My friends, have we lost a sense of holiness about our bodies, about the very Word of God, and how we should treat it, and how we should revere it, and how we should read it, and how we should dig into it and study it? Daniel would say, guys, we are walking on holy ground and we are in a treacherous position because we we can know that God has said something plainly in his word and yet I can go out and live just the opposite? You've got to be kidding me. Now let me say this. Do we at times treat the holy assembly of God's people as if it's not something sacred? And my friends, the scriptures teach when God's people gather, there's something very special about this. I think you could even make an argument that it it is a sacrament. It's one of those things that God works directly through in our hearts. Yet sometimes I feel like we have such a flippant view of what happens in here that we don't prepare our hearts. We walk in late, we leave early. You know, I've appreciated, probably you've appreciated over the last decade or two as, as dress has become more casual in services. I appreciate that to a point. 
But I do have a question in my mind is maybe as we've made dress more casual, we've also made our attitudes more casual about what happens. And we don't walk into this place understanding that this is a holy hour that deserves more than me just sort of coming and going when I please and when I want to. And deserves me to treat it as something holy and sacred. Can I ask you, do your children see you treating this as something holy and sacred? Something that's distinctive? You see, that's the problem back here. This king is totally disregarding the things that are holy. And the third warning is you have substituted false gods. You knew about the true God. You've seen evidence in your family about his working. Your grandfather even bowed down a few times and worshipped him. And now you've got the gall to bring the holy items, the temple in, and to worship gods of stone and gold, just statues. The key verse will be the end of verse 23, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. God holds in his hands your life and all your ways, and you didn't honor him. There was a British humanist in the 1800s named William Hunley. You've probably heard what he wrote. I am the master of my faith and the captain of my soul. God of heaven would say through Daniel, no, you're not. And when you pretend that you're the master of your life, you're on shaky ground. Because let me tell you what happens now. This banquet hall turns into a courtroom. And God's about to give the verdict. Go with me back to Daniel 5, verse 25. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel, parson, hear what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Periz, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed to be the third highest ruler in in the kingdom. He doesn't seem to even pay attention to what Daniel has said. There's no repentance. There's no falling down. There's no explanation of what do I do here? He's got to a point where he just almost crazily closed Daniel with what Daniel didn't even want. And then look at the pronounced judgment in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What does he say? He says, let me give you this weighty pronouncement. I mean, you see the the meaning of these words. Your days are numbered. You think you're this great and powerful king? You're not even paying attention to what's going on around your city? Your days are numbered. The scripture teaches us that we should do the same. Psalms 90 says, teach us to number our days. James 4 warns us that your life is but a vapor that appears for just a little while and then vanishes away. Hebrews 10 says, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's for all of us. And yet, like Belshazzar, how many of us don't really pay attention that our days are numbered? And then he says, you are found wanting. You've been put on the scales and you don't, there's nothing weighty about your life. You've been found wanting. And then he says, your kingdom is destroyed, it's divided. 
fascinating fact of history what happens here. Uh, the, the, the Medes and Persians are surrounding the city. Again, there's these impregnable walls. But there is a beautiful river that runs through the city of Babylon, the Euphrates. And here's what Darius does while the king is partying. He builds a diversion of the river and diverts the water around the city. And then the Medes and the Persians walk in the middle of Babylon while the king and his officials are drunk out of their mind. They walk in on dry ground and conquer the city overnight. It's an amazing scene. Exactly what Daniel said would happen. And I say to you and I, there's a day coming where God's going to say what he said to Belshazzar. This very night will be the end of your life. Just like he said to the rich fool in the New Testament, your life will be required of you. And one day, my friends, we will not stand in a great hall and see handwriting on the wall, but we will stand in a great judgment hall and we will be looking for the writing in the book of life. And in that moment, let's be honest, the only thing that's going to matter is, is my name there? And let me say this, our only hope is to wake up, surrender to Jesus, and accept his forgiveness. That's the only way we can face that day. So I want to ask you this morning, have we seen this incredible chapter? How do you respond to wake-up calls? Well, we have them in life, don't we? How do you respond? How do you respond when you go to the doctor? He says, you know, you're overweight and your blood pressure's up and you need to do something about it. How do you respond when your spouse says to you, you know what, I'm nearing the end of my rope in this marriage and you need to wake up? How do you respond when you get that phone call from the creditors that are pushing on you because your bills aren't paid? How do you respond when one day you're riding down the road the way I was the other day, you know, and I'm making that terrible mistake of texting on my phone, and I look right up, and there's a car right in front of me. I slam on the brakes, and I miss it, and that was a wake-up call. Now, am I going to stop texting on the phone, or am I going to keep doing it? I ask you, just in day-to-day life, there's all these wake-up calls that we receive. How do you respond, you know? When you have that close brush with the object sex at the office and words that shouldn't be said between people that aren't married or said, and there's that light brush of the skin, the question is, will you wake up in that moment and get as far away from that situation as possible? My friends, we get all kinds of wake-up calls in life, and my question to you this morning is, how do you respond to those wake-up calls? Do you just, like Belshazzar, just disregard them, act like they didn't happen, or do they jerk you back in the place where you need to be? But even better question this morning, how do you respond to wake-up calls from God? Maybe 
you keep seeing yourself in a crisis in life. Maybe it's a crisis at work or a crisis with your family or a crisis with your help or a crisis at work. I don't know what it may be. I think often we ask the wrong question. We say, how in the world do I get out of this situation? Where the question needs to be, what do I need to get out of this situation? You receive those wake-up calls from God. A friend warns you that you don't seem to be the person you were just a few years ago. Your spouse says to you, I really don't want to spend eternity without you. You hear a scripture or a message, even from this pulpit, that convicts you. You find yourself drifting further and further away from faith. You skip church more and more and more, and you feel no guilt about it. You begin to see yourself get involved in addictive behaviors that you know could be detrimental to your life, to your marriage, to your soul. They're all wake-up calls. Often, I think, wake-up calls from God that say, you're going in the wrong direction. You're disregarding me. You're treating things that are holy like they were unholy. Because here's, here's the warning from this incredible ancient story, is that you can hear the warning, you can see the handwriting on the wall, and you can disregard it. In your life, I'm not trying to be too rough today, but this is the point of the story, my friends. Your life can end in utter destruction. And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God hadn't warned you. It's not that God hadn't put people and events in your life to say, you need to wake up. It's not anything to do with a lack of love or grace on God's part. He's put all of those things as wake-up calls in your life and my life to say, you need to get your priorities right. The problem is not with God, his love, or his grace. That's not the point of this story. The problem is our ability to disregard the wake-up call, to hit the snooze button, to not see the handwriting on the wall and just keep on walking in the direction that we're walking. And so this morning, I dare you, I dare you from Daniel to respond to God's wake-up call. I dare you as we sing this song in just a moment. If it's time for you to get right with God, why don't you do that? If it's time for you to have some prayers, if you've been receiving these wake-up calls in your conscience, in your conviction, and you come to church every Sunday, you think, you know, I really need to get this right. Or your spouse has said some things to you that ought to shake you up. Or a friend has noticed some things in you that you need to respond to. My friend, you don't want to say about eternity. You know, I should have known. The handwriting was on the wall. And I just kept doing what I wanted to do. Today is a day, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 13, it's high time that you woke up. And if this could be that moment, don't 
stand where you are. Come and do something about it. Let's stand together in praise. There is love that came for us, humble to a sinner's cross. You broke my shame.